This is Leewood Online, a ministry of Leewood Baptist Church, located in the Kansas City area. For more information about us, visit us online at www.leewoodbaptist.com. Well, good morning again. I want to pray for us for a moment, and let me just kind of tell you where we're going the next couple of weeks, and then um, I want to invite you to pray with me around this theme of repentance. We're going to be in chapter 3 for actually four weeks. Um, Today, we're mostly going to focus on verses 1 to 12 and just ask, what's the difference between repentance that brings about the forgiveness of sins and this kind of feigning of religious ritual that these Pharisees and Sadducees were after that actually gets rebuked. How do you know what real repentance looks like? That's kind of where we'll go today. And then next week, we'll talk about why is Jesus baptized? If baptism is about repentance and Jesus is perfect, then why does he get baptized? We'll talk about that next week. And we're actually going to spend two weeks on the last verse of chapter 3, where you have uh, the beautiful demonstration of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit all on display in one verse. And so we'll get a chance to talk about the doctrine of the Trinity, which is the Christian teaching that God exists as one essence in three persons. And even that, you're going like, dang, I don't know what that means. So we're going to spend a whole session on that, a whole week on that. And then we'll talk about the implications of that. If that's who God is and how he exists, what does that mean for us? So that's kind of where we're going to go in the next few weeks. But today we're talking about repentance. And I kind of foreshadowed in my prayer, um, I don't know how you experience that word. It's uh, probably a word that um, is complicated for you. Um, either it's like really simplistic and you've heard like ritual stuff. Maybe you pray a certain prayer and that's what repentance looks like. It feels mechanical to you. Maybe it's felt elusive. Maybe you've actually been haunted. Maybe for you, repentance is this thing that you wrestle with at two and three and four in the morning after you've done something that you said you would never do again. And then you wonder like, gosh, if I trust God and I said I was sorry, then why is this still there? And maybe repentance is kind of the theme that you struggle with when you're going like, I thought I really loved God. If I really love God, then why am I doing things that God says I shouldn't do? So maybe repentance has felt like tormented for you. Maybe you've spent days and weeks and maybe years of your life in doubt and struggle around things you've heard about repentance, about expectations you have for yourself around repentance. And so I'm, I'm thankful that we get a chance just to slow down this morning and say, hey, so what is real repentance? And how is it contrasted to something that's religious in nature or mechanical in nature or actually won't bring life but bring condemnation? This thing that John the Baptist kind of yells at uh, these Pharisees and Sadducees for, like, is that, is that what's going on? If I do it wrong, does God yell at me? Like, I just think it can be really confusing. I doubt in 30 minutes we'll unravel all of that for you, but, but I do want to invite the Holy Spirit to just speak to you directly. Maybe as I'm naming some of those polls, you can identify in your story with some of those experiences or some of those struggles. Or maybe actually you feel like you're above repentance. Like God's gotten a favor when he got you, and so what is there to repent of? After all, you're actually top 5%. Maybe that's how you even encounter, like as an unnecessary thing for you, maybe for for people like Adolf Hitler, but you surely don't have to. So it just, we're all over the place. So, So can we just ask the Spirit of God to speak kind of where we are in these moments. And so we're trying to practice like being okay in the silence. This won't go for very long. You don't have to use fancy words, but would you just bow your head and close your eyes for a second? Just for yourself, would you ask the Spirit of God to speak to you about what is true repentance and give you confidence that what Jesus did on the cross is enough for you when it comes to your sin? Just pray that. 
God, would you help me understand what true repentance is and give me confidence in the sacrifice of Jesus? Just pray that for yourself for a moment as you ask God to open up your heart. So God, I've been praying that all week for myself. I've been praying for um, a heart that would long to be free, a heart that would long to be unburdened by the weight of sin, a heart that would long to step away from pride and shame and run to you in repentance. So God, would you grant that to me in this moment? And would you grant to my friends not just cognitive understanding, but but a spirit-led understanding of what it means to actually be transformed and forgiven and free? And for those who right now, all they can think about is their guilt and shame. All they can think about is last night or last week or last year or, or what happened in college that nobody knows about. God, would you speak a truer and better word of forgiveness over their shame, over their condemnation, and help them actually unplug their ears from shame so that they can hear the good news of grace that you want to speak to them this morning. And then, God, would you just protect us? This passage says um, the topic could actually be dangerous for us. He calls these people that feign response. He calls them snakes and vipers. So where there's a hard-heartedness, where there's a resistance far from like something that is soft and, but feels um, unable to get repentance, people that are hard-hearted and rigid, uh, thanks to the gospel, is good news to break their hearts as well. So, so would you just highlight for us what we need so that we could hear your voice? And would you grant repentance in the room so that we walk out, whether it's converted for the first time, or it's unburdened from things that have haunted us, or, or it's this um, longing in our hearts for something more, something more beautiful, something uh, free, would you, would you speak to us? Give us grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so when you think about repentance, I automatically go word association to apologies. I don't know where you go, but there's something about like asking for forgiveness and repenting and apologizing that we've experienced in relationships. And and I bet you all of us have had that experience where someone has apologized to you, but it wound up feeling like it was somehow your fault, where they say like, hey, I'm sorry you misunderstood me, and it's that time of the month for you, but I didn't mean anything by it. And you go like, wait, are, are you apologizing to me? Or are you apologizing? What, like, who, who's here? Or, hey, I'm sorry that you couldn't handle this. I'm sorry that you couldn't take a joke. I'm sorry that something, something, something. And so we get these apologies sometimes, but they wind up like, flipping back on us as if we did something wrong, and that's the reason why the person did something to us. It's almost like an abusive thing. It's what an abuser would say, hey, I'm sorry I hit you, but you just make me crazy because you're so blank. And you go like, wait, I get really confused sometimes. So we've had those experiences. What's fascinating is I bet you've actually been on the giving end of that, not just the receiving end. And it's much more difficult to see when you're the one saying, I'm sorry, but... So we have this strange deal with apologies, and we have a couple of options, right? Our apology is essentially a formula we follow where if I say the right words and I use I feel statements rather than you did statements, then it actually works. Or is it, is it like language that I use, or is it a heart posture that I have? I thought about those scenes from The Office where Michael Scott is leading through like conflict resolution. He's got that huge binder. He's going after like the win-win-win scenarios, and they're always just a total mess. I actually had one of those moments in real life. So I was sitting down with a couple. We were doing some marriage counseling. 
the guy actually bought a gigantic three-ring binder to our session. He worked for a Fortune 500 company. He was in like arbitration and resolutions, and he was actually leading a team and just come out of a team-building exercise where he learned how to lead through as a mediator for conflict. So he brings his little notebook to our session. It's just he and his wife and I. She's in tears, and he's flipping through his notebook trying to find the section of this notebook that would deal with this particular moment. And as he's wrestling with this, I remember him just being exasperated, going like, why isn't this working? Like, I've got the certificate in my office that I've passed the test. I know how to do this. And yet she's not listening to the steps that I'm supposed to be following. It was fascinating. And I thought, oh, man, okay, repentance can't just simply be steps. But it makes sense that we think it is because most of our life is lived kind of in manipulation and in management. We, we tend to just manage ourselves and manage others. We say what we need to to get by. We say what we need to to have our guilt lifted. We're pretty good as we get older of managing our relationships. And so we're just kind of used to following steps, saying magic words, and getting what we want. The problem is that's not the way God works at all. And actually what we see throughout the Old Testament is God's people struggled a lot with his laws and rules and regulations and things like sacrifices. Sometimes wondering, all right, am I just simply going up to the altar, taking a lamb and I sacrifice him and then I'm good? Is that all it takes? Is it, is it mechanical with God? Could I just show up to the temple, do my thing? Could I keep the Sabbath? Could I watch all the rules and then I'm fine? Or is there something more God needs for me, asks of me. And what you have in the Old Testament are the prophets speaking into that situation all the time. Hey, what's the difference between heartfelt, genuine connection to God and a mechanical rule following that actually separates you from God? It doesn't actually draw you close. It somehow insulates you from his love. And you've experienced maybe years where you followed rules, maybe felt entitled or proud of yourself, but didn't feel close to God. So Old Testament is full of Old Testament prophets speaking to God's people, hey, I don't care about your sacrifices. I don't care about your money. I don't care what you do with these animals on the altar. What I want is your heart, that the right sacrifice is a broken and contrite heart. And then it's in that space that we have this last Old Testament prophet, John the Baptist, who, who basically is doing that message. He's coming to the people, calling them to repent. And Matthew doesn't waste a ton of time with introductions here. He simply wants you to know what John's message is, and he wants you to kind of know what his garments and his clothes point to. So look with him real quick in verse 1 of chapter 3. It says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Here was his message, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Step away from the kingdom of the world and move towards the kingdom of heaven, because God is on the move and it's close is his message. For this is he who was spoken by the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. This is chapter 40 of Isaiah. So the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. And now you scratch your head a little bit and go, what is he saying? The Old Testament prophesied that there would be a forerunner before the Messiah came. So one would come and actually proclaim the good news of who the Messiah was. When you heard him saying what the Old Testament had always said, get ready was the idea. And in fact, actually, if you could flip over just a couple of pages to the last book of the Old Testament. So it's on page 802 in that pew Bible. This is the book of Malachi. This is the last Old Testament prophet. This is the last thing the people would have heard before John the Baptist shows up. Hey, and we're talking like 400 years between Malachi is written and Jesus shows up on the scene. Hey, that's a pretty long time. So they have this anticipation, this longing, this expectation that there's going to be a messenger come. Listen to what chapter 3 verse 1 says. God promised, he says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. 
God says, I'm going to send a prophet. He's going to prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He came to actually purify and refine, he says. So there's a prophecy that he's going to come. And he's going to come actually to bring about something that would bring about purity, some way for repentance, some way for you to actually be purified and refined. And now look over in chapter 4. This is the last verses of the Old Testament. Chapter 4 of Malachi, verses 5 and 6. says this, Behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord, before that comes. And he will come and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction." All right, and so we have like a strange relationship with Old Testament prophecy. You have warnings in there that are really severe, right? Sin is a really big deal. Rebellion against God is a really, really big deal. And then he also talks about our hearts and him coming to us and coming to bring about reconciliation, right? So what we see is a warning and an invitation in Old Testament prophets. And this says, the last verse, hey, I'm going to send one like Elijah who's going to come to you. And what Matthew wants you to know is this is who John the Baptist is. So in verse 4, when you read about these garments, and now we're back in Matthew 3, you read about these garments of camel hair and a leather belt, and he's eating locusts. Don't think like a dude who's given himself to organic, like free-sourced fibers. He's actually wearing the garb of an Old Testament prophet. The Bible tells us that, that Elijah actually wore those clothes. So Matthew wants out the gate, hey, there was a prophecy that a forerunner is going to come. He's going to come before the Messiah. This dude looks like him and has his message. This must be the Messiah that he's pointing to. That's what Matthew wants you to know about John the Baptist. And into that space, what John is well aware of is that people are used to mechanisms and formulas and rituals and doing things on the outside with hearts that are really far away from God. It's what my friend did in this marriage session, right? Doing these outward steps, right? These seven keys to clear communication, but his heart was not to get to his wife. His heart was not to actually see his own brokenness so that he could be healed and transformed. His heart was not to actually be reconciled. His heart was to be proven right so he could put her in her place so they could get on to life as usual where he got everything that he wanted. That was my friend's heart. And it's into that kind of space that all of us can acknowledge, like we've been there. We've lived seasons of our life there. We've experienced the pain of other people doing that to us. And we've actually experienced the pain of doing that to other people. We are used to management and manipulation. So the question then becomes, how do you know when your outward signs of repentance are actually signs of inward transformation or they're simply just ritual? Because these people come, we see in verse 6, and they were baptized in the Jordan River, and they were confessing their sins. Right? This is a beautiful description of them outwardly reflecting what's inside their hearts. Right? So baptism is, right? baptism doesn't save us. Baptism doesn't actually transform us. It's an outward symbol of a commitment we've already made inside of our hearts to trust Jesus. So, so this passage says people were doing that. They were coming outwardly, doing something that reflected the inner heart. And then, like always happens, there's a counterfeit response to that. So you have genuine people responding, and then you have a counterfeit in verse 7. 
But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, these are words we haven't seen yet. These are the religious elite in the first century. These are Jewish scribes and leaders and teachers. These are people who had political power. These are people who often were wealthy. They're the ones who knew the Old Testament forward and backward and were really skilled at using it against other people. They're, they're actually opponents of Jesus throughout the gospel accounts, right? There's people who had established religious power that Jesus comes to actually bust up. And rather than welcoming him to see like real repentance and forgiveness and healing and transformation, they find a threat to their power. They cling to it with all their might and they resist the Messiah. So, so then we have this conflict right away. The Pharisees and Sadducees, they come to this baptism, right? So here's a little bit confusing. The outward sign is the inward deal. These guys are coming, and they're coming to do the outward sign, but John the Baptist knows something about their heart, so he doesn't say, well done, come on in, you're next in line. Listen to what he says in verse 7. He says, you brood of vipers. Which, hey, like if we're in a meeting, and that's the way I start our conversation, like we're kind of in a bad spot. Like something else has been going on. I've heard some other things. You've said some other things. Like something else is going on. There's some kind of context that John the Baptist understands to say these guys' hearts were more like snakes than they were like converts. So to stop for a second, there's a deception, right? Think about what you know of snakes or even like cultural images of snakes. It's not like a, a cuddly thing that you want in your bedroom. You probably didn't give your child like a big stuffed snake for Christmas. And if you did, maybe we have a conversation we need to have about like your parenting and movies that you've seen. But most times when we see snakes, it's lies. It's like hiddenness that's pretty scary. There's a threat to it. So he just calls out right away, hey, there's deception and there's some danger. So I don't think he's like name calling. I don't think he's like trying to rub their face in something. I think he's trying to warn them, hey, there's a way you're coming that actually isn't pure and holy it's full of deception and it's dangerous. So if that's the way he starts this thing, I think with some earnestness, we should lean in and go, hey, how would I know if my outward acts of following after God, right? Because I'm inviting you to read the Bible, which is an outward act, right? It's possible for you to do that in ways that are really tender and close and you're asking for God to speak to you. It's also possible for you to do that in ways that you would rank yourself against somebody else. You would find some sort of established security because you didn't miss a single day. There's things like that, right? Same outward act, based on your heart, it has a different motivation or different response. So the same outward act of baptism, for one, is the uh, repentance that brings freedom, and for another one, it brings rebuke. So, so how do you know if it's an outward sign or if it's actually something that's marking an inward transformation? So, so let me give you six things from the text that I think Matthew wants us to see six signs that you're not actually bringing true repentance, but you're trying to manage. This is something more built in pride. Because remember, the original viper speaks to us about pride, of what we deserve, and then he traps us with shame. He baits us with pride, and then he traps us with shame. And friends, we've heard his voice for a really, really, really long time. So it would make sense that in your heartfelt repentance, is a mixture of some things that you've absorbed from our culture or from the original viper, from Satan himself, from the snake in the garden who takes half-truths and blends them. I want to just kind of expose his lies in a moment to say, hey, what does it actually look like for us? And here's the first one from chapter 3, verse 7. 
It's that you're more concerned about the avoidance of consequences than you are the effects of your sin. So look at me. He says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He says, hey, what you're concerned about is avoiding the consequences. It's not that your heart is actually broken and you're distraught and you want to bring repentance to God. It's actually you want to avoid the consequences. You've gotten caught and you're facing now a reputation shot. You're facing now shame. And so you're doing whatever it takes for you to avoid the consequences of your sin. Religious repentance that's different than genuine conversion that brings about repentance is more concerned about the avoidance of consequences. It's you saying, I can't believe I did that. I'm not that kind of guy. It's you not wanting somebody to find out. It's you trying to get ahead of something so that you manage your reputation and identity on the front side of it rather than actually owning the effects of your sin. They are more concerned to avoid consequences. And here's what's really tricky. When someone gets caught, when I get caught, not some other guy, when I get caught, it's sometimes hard to tell if I'm actually repentant or if I'm just worried about shame. If I'm worried about what you're going to think about me. The line between like remorse and regret that's going to lead towards a religious route that'll kill you looks really similar to a heartfelt repentance in the early stages. The words are almost identical. I'm so sorry. can't believe I did that. Please forgive me. And it's actually only over time that we realize the effects of our repentance bear fruit or do we just use words to avoid consequences? So I have memories as a kid of getting in trouble. And then I have a distinct memory of like an over-the-top response where I'm like crying and I'm terrible. And I'm like grounding myself. And I'll never take allowance for a whole other year. And I do this whole thing. And my parents kind of freaked out. Like I was maybe losing my mind a little bit. So they backed way off of my punishment. I think I was like seven. At seven years old, I had a category for if I over-discipline myself, my parents will go light on me. I wasn't concerned about the actual act that I had done. I wanted to avoid the consequences of what I had done. In that moment, we have a temptation to do and say the right thing to avoid the consequences rather than actually the effects of that sin on our heart that are leading towards death. Right? So, so religious is worried about consequences. Kind of real repentance is worried about the relationship. It's worried about the effects of our heart not the outward consequences. All right, that's from chapter 3, verse 7. All right, look with me in verse 8. He says, instead of this avoiding the wrath and the consequences, you should bear fruit that's in keeping with repentance. Real repentance actually bears fruit over time. It's not just concerned with the moment, which actually, if you think about an organic metaphor, like fruit doesn't like force itself to be produced. It happens naturally because it's connected to the tree. Right, so you'll never see an orange like gritting his teeth on this orange tree. It just happens because he's connected. So this is actually an indication of self-effort. Like religious repentance is more concerned with its own self-effort than it is with what God can do inside of you. Right, religious repentance and actually gets full of pride and shame when someone doesn't recognize or someone holds things against you. But it's more concerned with what you do than with what the tree actually produces in you, right? So think about John 15 and the vine and the branches staying connected to Jesus. This is an indication that that religious repentance, not real repentance, but religious repentance is aimed at your own self-effort. Are you more concerned with what you have done than what Christ has done for you? 
Are you more concerned with what it looks like, which is the next point of our reputation, or what actually is being produced inside of you, right? So, so avoiding of consequences, it's focused on your own self-effort. Look in verse 9. It's concerned about reputation. It says, and don't be presumptuous. Don't, don't be, presume and say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. And you're like, all right, man, he's talking to a very particular person in a very particular time period. What he's saying is, hey, don't be presumptuous to think because you come from a long line of Jewish tradition, and Abraham is your great, 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 great grandfather, that you're fine with God because of where you come from, which is a tip towards reputation and identity and pedigree, rather than actually giving your heart over to the relationship. He says, hey, you're more concerned about your reputation than you are with this relationship. You're more concerned about what somebody's going to think about you, and you're presuming that because you come from this long line of descendants of Abraham, then you're fine. You're trying to maintain your family name. You're more concerned about what the neighborhood's going to say about you, or what the city's going to say about you, or what they're going to say about you in the office than you are with actually what God sees about your heart. You're more concerned about the reputation that you have in maintaining that at any cost when you're on the side of religious repentance. Versus giving your heart over to God and asking him to purify and cleanse you, which would be um, unconcerned with what somebody else thinks and only concerned with what God thinks. And what's fascinating about that is God already sees you exactly as you are. So you can't manage your reputation with God. You thought about that? Think about the ways you pray. And I've actually tried to like convince God that something was true about me that wasn't actually true by using a certain set of words and promises and then I'm reminded, no, the scripture says he fully knows my heart even better than I do. Religious repentance is trying to protect a reputation. Real repentance understands our reputation as sinners is actually already devastated. And God speaks grace and truth and hope into that. So we could actually be forgiven and free, not seen as amazing. Are you repenting so that your reputation is one, somebody who repents great, somebody who's really honest, somebody who's really humble? Are you holding on to that kind of reputation? Or are you acknowledging, hey, actually what's true about me is at the core of who I am, I I don't deserve anything. I'm capable of of such darkness that God himself had to die for me. That, that, That my reputation is one that the scriptures would say of like dead person and enemy and somebody who who is so far away from God, my only hope was that God himself would die for me. That's not an esteemed reputation, but it is the path towards forgiveness. It is the way that you could actually be healed and forgiven, but, but these religious leaders are holding on to their reputation. So, so John just says, hey, stop saying you're a child of Abraham, and because of that, you're fine. Stop depending on your religious pedigree and your background and your reputation. Instead, give your heart over to let God say what is actually true about you. Receive the reputation the scriptures give to you of one who is a sinner because then you can actually be one who is forgiven and free and loved, not because you followed all the rules, not because you were amazing, not because you should be esteemed, but because of what God has actually done for you. So religious repentance wants to avoid consequences. It's, it's focused on self-reliance. It's focused on, on the person's reputation and it minimizes the effects of sin. It actually reduces sin down just to actions, not to root issues. So I get that from verse 10. He says, hey, even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. The Bible talks not so much about what we do on the outside, but where it comes from. And religious repentance is obsessed with 
outward things and minimizing the impact of those things rather than getting in touch with where they come from. So if Jesus says it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks, that means it's from your heart that you also do everything that you do, which means when you say a word that you shouldn't have said, when you accuse somebody, when you're, whether it's racist or it's bigoted or it's belittling or it's prideful or it's arrogant or it's sexist or it's whatever it is that is your troubling thing, when that happens and you say, oh, I didn't mean to say that, what's more true is you should say, oh, I didn't mean for what is true inside my heart to leak out of my mouth because that's actually inside of me. We don't say anything out of our mouths that aren't already inside our hearts, right? And so religious repentance is obsessed with the outward, which has an effect of minimizing the effects of something, which real repentance goes straight to the root, so, so early in our marriage and ministry, um, I'm late all the time. Let me, let, me, let me clarify. I'm still always late all the time. Early in our marriage, I'm late a lot. And we have little kids. And moms and dads, you know that like 5 p.m. witching hour where like if you're not home at 5.05, like all hell breaks loose. And it's just like diabolical. There's like literally like fire coming down from heaven because it's so chaotic for children around five, something like 507. I mean, it just wheels off. It's crazy. So if I said, hey, I'll be home by five, and it's like 515, 520, 530, 6, 615, and I'm doing like religious stuff. I'm doing gospel-y things. I'm meeting with somebody. I'm counseling somebody. I'm at the office doing like really important stuff. I would get home, and my sweet little wife would say, you're a liar. You said you'd be home at 5. It's like 5.45 or 6.15 or sometimes 7 o'clock. She didn't ask, who are you saving and rescuing? Who are you mending to their needs? Who did you actually minister to? What she said was, you said you were going to be here and you weren't. Those are great conversations, right? So now we have this long conversation about, hey, why am I late? And, hey, Adrian, I'm doing like all this really, really important religious stuff. And my wife loves me enough to say no. I mean, yes and no. You did that later in the day, but what about like at 2 p.m. when you got all goofy and you wasted time and you just wandered down the hallway and visited with somebody for 45 minutes rather than saying, hey, I can't talk right now. I've got some things I got to do because I got to get home at five. You chose, Adrian helped me see, people pleasing in the moment so to not say no to somebody that didn't actually need my help but made me feel good to be needed, to be wanted. That's a big deal. That's actually driving the clock. Now, now it's not just simply, was I late or not? You wind that up to my heart and go, hey, I have this people-pleasing tendency where I'll say yes to almost anything so that somebody likes me. Sounds super desperate. I get it. It would be weird for us to process together. But it's true. I'm trying to be honest about what's inside of me, right? So it's not just, was I late? It's, was I people-pleasing in such a way that I made a decision so that somebody would like me, so I depended on that for my identity and reputation, and that was more important to me than my wife, than my kids. And if you ask me, hey, are those people important in your family? I'd say, heck no, no way. But if you walk back that decision, you walk back the effects of that, not just the action, but where it comes from, what you realize is my people-pleasing tendencies are so deep, I'll sacrifice almost anything and anybody to accomplish that. All right, as you pity me, that's fine, that's great. Here's the deal. The invitation from the gospel is for that to be healed. 
The implication of the gospel is not just so you stop it and don't hurt your wife and you get home on time. The implication of the gospel, the invitation is, hey, come all the way, not past the action, or don't stop with the action, come all the way back to what drives that, 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 down to the root. Right? The axe is at the root, not hanging on the fruit tree. It's not just after the one apple. The axe is all the way down to the root. Religious repentance is obsessed with the outward thing. Hey, I only did this. I only did this one time. It was only this long. I only clicked on this thing. I didn't actually go that far. It wouldn't technically pornography. It was just this. You minimize everything because you won't let your heart go all the way to the root, which is where God wants to heal you. Religious repentance is obsessed with minimizing outward things. And it has a hard time going at the heart because if you let it go all the way to the bottom of your heart, you realize you can't manage it, keep it up. You're so broken and so sick. You needed a savior from the outside, which ah, now the gospel of Jesus becomes actually good news. Because the gospel is not the good news of how you can manage all the outward things. The gospel is the good news of how God actually can heal you from the inside out. That Jesus came to actually touch that place inside of us. Real quickly, I think outward religious repentance is more concerned over the moment than real long-term growth, right? Which is about fruit and trees, and it's about long-term organic growth and transformation. You're committed to not just this one moment and getting through this, but encountering God for, for real growth. And religious repentance is also obsessed with fear. It's afraid, right? This winnowing fork, this imagery here is like a terrifying image. If you're trying to produce your own identity, if you're trying to make yourself safe, real repentance is actually rooted in trust, that what God has done for me is enough for me to be okay. So, so real quickly on those last ones, right? It, it's religious is committed to the moment over the real heart, right? Which is why we talked about the mundane last week, for God to meet us in those quiet, regular moments and change us there. And it's actually rooted in fear, fear of God, fear of being found out, fear of being seen as inadequate, fear of not having what it takes. Real repentance says, oh, I don't have what it takes. I'm actually already been found out. Uh, the gospel actually says to me in this dark place, right? It's a call to repentance first, right? The whole idea is I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I need help from the outside. And religion offers me lots of solutions that I can manage, that build my reputation, that keep me out of the consequences, that actually make me look amazing. But the gospel says no, only Jesus could be the one who is going to actually rescue which is why John the Baptist says, hey, Jesus is going to come and do something real different. So we'll close here. Look with me in verse 11. If those are the signs of religious repentance, you should be asking, well, man, how, how do I actually get to real repentance? I mean, those things feel real familiar to me. That's what I've learned my whole life. How do I actually get to real repentance? And so John offers us hope here. He says this. He says, I baptize with water for repentance. Right? It's an outward symbol. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I. Whose sandals I'm not even worthy to carry, which is a great place to start with humility. But he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Far from just water on the outside, there's something that you need on the inside. And he offers us real relationship, but he also warns us of judgment so that our hearts can actually be transformed and changed. He says the Messiah is coming and he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, which now gets us into a place where we realize what we needed 
was not outward regulations to make ourselves better. We needed transformation on the inside. And as the people in Jesus' day would have heard this message from John the Baptist, they would have immediately gone to Ezekiel chapter 36. So if you have your Bible, you can flip there with me. We'll close here. Ezekiel 36 is the promise that the Messiah is going to come and give us new hearts. Because we didn't need just new rules to follow. We didn't need easier rules or harder rules or more contemporary rules. We needed to be changed from the inside out. So Isaiah 36, or sorry, Ezekiel 36, starting in 25, says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you, which sounds like baptism, right? I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all of your uncleanliness. And from all of your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit, right, baptism with the Holy Spirit, I'm going to give you myself within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So that the outward acts come from the inside transformation of our hearts being made new. Our dead stony hearts being made alive so that we could actually respond to God in faith. That is why the Messiah came. And John the Baptist says, hey, I'm, I'm kind of hammering you guys who come like snakes to deceive. You're more, you're more concerned with your outward appearance. You're more concerned with your self-reliance. You're more concerned with your reputation. You're more concerned with the consequences. You're minimizing what sin is. You won't go all the way to the root. You're focused on the moment, not on your overall growth. And you're filled with fear, which is why you need the Messiah to come and change your heart and give you himself. Because the new covenant promise isn't just all your sins get forgiven so you can feel better about yourself. It is God giving you himself. To be baptized with the Holy Spirit is what this Isaiah or the Ezekiel passage says of having our hearts changed and transformed and being filled with the Spirit of God. Real repentance comes when God does something to us, not when we first do something to God. And it's God coming and dying in our place so that we could be rescued and redeemed. It's a foreshadowing of Jesus stepping and taking on our judgment, right? Because we're baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fires to say, hey, there's some judgment coming, right? The root's coming, the axe is at the root, right? There's some, some language in this that's pretty intense. And what you have to realize is that apart from Jesus, we deserve that judgment. But what Jesus came to do was absorb that judgment for us so that you and I could be forgiven and free. And then we could actually relate to God through repentance, not to earn something, but to respond to what he's already accomplished for us, right? So, so he took our consequences so we don't have to try to manage them and avoid them. We, we couldn't save ourselves, so he came to save us. Our reputation is one as sinners, so he gave us his holy righteousness. Far from minimizing sin, he says your sin is so great, only God himself dying for you is enough for you to be forgiven and free. He is committed to our long-term growth and transformation, not just getting us out of a jam in the moment. And perfect love drives out fear as Jesus dies in our place to make a way for us to be reconciled and free. How do you know if you are given to religious repentance? The question is, what are you focusing on? Are you more focused on what you have done or on what Christ has done for you? And John the Baptist is pushing in front of us that what you needed was the Messiah to come and do something you could never do so you could actually be forgiven and free. And that is the starting place, friends, of freedom and liberation and forgiveness. It's what we celebrate when we take communion. Communion is this declaration that Jesus died on the cross in our place so that we could actually be forgiven and free. 
it's not an outward ritual we do that makes us right with God. It's remembering what Christ has already done to heal us from the inside out so that we're not left just with empty ritual, but we can actually have a relationship with God. But that's the starting place with repentance, and we'll talk more about that next week. So as we close then, I want to just invite you to remember this. Remember the solution to our problem. Remember that Christ came to heal us from the inside out. And the way he did it, the way he baptizes with the Holy Spirit is to die on the cross, to take our place so we could be forgiven and free, so he could give us his Holy Spirit, so we could actually be in relationship with him and could avoid that judgment that we rightly deserve because he took it upon himself. And it's on that cross where his body was broken and his blood was shed that that's accomplished. So Christian, I invite you to take communion in this moment to remember, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you can use this time just to pray and ask for God to help you. And I don't know where you go with sin and brokenness or where you go with that thing inside of you that says you're inadequate. The Christian solution to that is not you doing more and trying harder. It's God accomplishing for you on your behalf forgiveness and redemption and grace. So the invitation to you, if you're not a follower of Jesus, is actually to trust Christ. It's not just to take a, an outward ritual. It's to actually receive Jesus as the one who died in your place. And so I would invite you to that. And if you're not ready for that, I mean, just sit in your seat and pray and ask for God to speak to you. Ask for God to show himself to you. Ask for God to confirm in your heart if this is true and there really is hope outside of yourself. Ask him to tell you that and show you that. But for those who are trusting Christ, I want to invite you to communion. And, and we'll just do what we've been doing where I'll have uh, Roxy just come and play over us. Take your time. We'll take a, a minute or two just to kind of, see when you're ready, get in a spot where you're saying, all right, Father, thank you for what you've done through sending your son. You peel off the little top layer and take that wafer as a reminder of the broken body of Christ. And then you drink the juice as a reminder of his shed blood for you. This one looks like a little chalice. is gluten-free. This other one that has a purple lid. is for those without allergies. I want to invite you just to remember how Jesus made real repentance possible. Because a talk of repentance is a talk of freedom, not, not shame. So I'll pray. Roxanne will play for a moment, and then Jason will lead us in a closing song. Jesus, thank you for what you've done. Thank you for a word about repentance, and thank you um, that we get to look over these people's shoulders who are coming for religious reasons to manage you and manage their own identity and manage their own reputation. Thanks that we don't have to do that. We couldn't anyway, but thanks that you made it possible by your grace and mercy for us not to have to try to manage. We could just admit and receive and trust. Thanks to what you did on the cross is sufficient for us to be forgiven. So now as we remember your broken body and shed blood, would you fill us with joy and with hope and grant us grace to repent from those things that are holding us back, that are harming us, harming other people. God, would you speak freedom over us even while we repent through taking communion. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us online. Leeway Baptist Church exists to glorify God by making disciples of all nations. For more information about us and our ministry, please visit us at www.leewoodbaptist.com.